Does it matter uh, what you eat? Uh, when you think about the world we live in today, uh, when you think about all the diets uh, that people follow, uh, we might uh, follow a dairy-free diet, you may follow a gluten-free diet, you may follow uh, a fat-free diet. Uh, there are all kinds of diets that people follow today, and we have the benefit of being able to, uh, to live uh, with a flexibility of our diets in our modern world. But also when you think about all the books that are written about the importance of eating healthy in order to have a healthy life, uh, a healthy lifestyle, or you think about the many documentaries that are done uh, that really scrutinize the appropriateness of eating certain kinds of food and the ethics behind different sources of food. Our culture would be emphatic in saying it does matter what you eat. It matters from an ethical standpoint, it matters from a, a health standpoint, uh, it, it matters in terms of a well-being standpoint. Uh, but does it matter to God what you eat? We just read from Leviticus and any Israelite living in the Old Covenant would tell you it mattered very much to God uh, what they ate. That what they ate was very important uh, because God had said so. And this evening we want to think about uh, these dietary laws of the Old Covenant system. Why these Israelites uh, followed this distinction between clean food and unclean food. Why they would eat one thing and not another thing. And what God was trying to teach them through that. That might seem like a, uh, an odd thing to consider, especially because... Jesus declared that all foods were clean, uh, that it's not what goes into the body that makes one unclean, but what proceeds from the heart that makes us unclean. So why are we even going back to the Old Testament to study these things? And part of the reason is, is because there's a principle being taught to the people. It's really like a living parable, that they are learning something about God and how they are to live through this whole system of how certain things are appropriate and certain things aren't. We do know from the New Testament that these laws are no longer binding. You remember how Peter in the book of Acts has that vision and there's a great sheet that descends and on it are animals of every kind. And he's told, rise, kill and eat. And Peter objects to it saying, no, Lord, essentially, uh, because I've never eaten anything that was common or unclean. And then Peter is told, do not call what God has deemed clean, uh, unclean. Do not call it uh, unfit to eat. And so in the New Testament, we see that these practices uh, have been done away with. They have served their purpose and they're no longer binding. And yet we can still look at them and appreciate what they're trying to stress. How those who follow the Lord are to be consecrated to his will in the way that they live their lives. As we come to look at this chapter, though, uh, uh, we can appreciate that principle a little bit, uh, even by imagining ourselves living through this. That's something that one uh, Bible uh, teacher was teaching his students, uh, uh, people that were in seminary. He had them as an assignment. He had every one of his students uh, complete this assignment where what they were called to do for a period of time 
was to see how they could follow or how many of the Levitical commands they could abide by for the stretch of their course. As much as you can, try to follow these laws. And then I want you to write a reflection paper on what you learned. And he said whenever he gives that assignment out, the students would groan, thinking about how burdensome this is going to be, how, how hard this is going to be, trying to, to sort things out, what's clean, what's not clean, what can I do, what can't I do, and all these different commands in the book of Leviticus. But he said that whenever they write their reflection paper, those students will come back and they will say things like, it started to shape my thinking. That I was constantly thinking clean, unclean, pure, impure. That every time I went to eat, I had to think to myself, is this pure? Is this pleasing in God's sight? And what the students would come away with at the end of the day was saying, when they thought back to what they were practicing in the Old Covenant, they realized that there was a view of holiness that was thorough. It touched on everything about what they did. And it made them think to themselves, do I have too low a view of what it means to be consecrated to the Lord? Am I thinking about God's will in the way that I go about all of life? Because that's what the Israelites were learning. They were learning that all of life is to be lived under the will of the Lord. And so even though these commands aren't binding today, we can still appreciate a lesson that is being taught through them. This evening, though, we want to look at Leviticus 11, and we want to see that because the Lord has redeemed his people, they are to be marked off as belonging to the Lord in every area of their life. This is a, a new section in Leviticus. Again, we, we want to keep our bearings as we come through this book. Uh, the first number of chapters, the first seven chapters, are really talking about different offerings that the people of God made. Chapters 8 through 10 are really helping us understand the priesthood. But now the next five chapters are really going to be about purity laws. They're going to be talking about clean versus unclean. And Leviticus 11 is distinct in the fact that it is about avoiding uncleanness. It's dealing with purity that one is in control of, to some degree, maintaining. And so we want to look especially at this chapter uh, this evening and thinking about it in terms of what people ate. We want to think about it in two thoughts. We want to think about avoiding uncleanness and then addressing uncleanness. Well, first, uh, we want to think about avoiding uncleanness. In this chapter, it's talking about what foods the people of Israel could eat. And it, it talks about all kinds of categories uh, based on uh, our perception of animals. It talks about land animals, it talks about sea creatures, it talks about uh, the flying creatures, and then it talks about insects. And it's, it's dividing, it's saying which insects you can eat, which ones you can't, which birds are permissible, which ones are not, which sea creatures you're allowed to eat and which ones you're not. Uh, and it, it, all the while, it's showing how uh, everything is to be brought under the will of God. So first, it talks about land creatures. And what was required for them to eat a land creature 
uh, or a domesticated animal uh, was two things. It had to have the parting of the hoof and the chewing of the cud. Meaning by that, uh, that an animal uh, would start chewing on food even if it had not recently taken a mouthful. Uh, and so a person could uh, deduce from that that somehow that animal was bringing up food from its stomach and digesting it uh, again and chewing on it. Uh, so these were the two criteria. But it meant that animals such as camels, the hare, the pig were unclean. Uh, so there is this distinction based on those two criteria. When it came to the sea creatures, two criteria. It needs to have scales and it needs to have fins. If it doesn't have those two criteria, they weren't to eat it. The flying creatures, it mentions many different kinds of creatures. Uh, most of them seem to have been birds of prey. Those were forbidden to be eaten. And then finally, it mentions uh, the insects. Uh, and when it mentions there uh, going on all fours, it's simply an idiom, meaning that it, it's a, an insect that crawls horizontally. Uh, but here it is mentioning which ones were permitted and which ones weren't. The locust, the grasshopper, and the cricket you could eat. Uh, those that had wings, those that had the joints uh, uh, to spring, those were permitted, but other insects were not. You think forward when you come to the New Testament. What's John the Baptist's diet? He's, he's eating wild honey and locusts. Uh, John is following these dietary laws from the Old Covenant. The locust is permitted, uh, whereas other things are not. So we might look at this list and we might wonder, how is it that you can differentiate what makes something clean versus unclean? And perhaps the safest answer is simply taking what the Lord himself says at the end of the chapter in verse 44. For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, and you shall therefore be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. Uh, uh, it is based on the Lord's command. God has the authority to set boundaries, and here that is what he is doing, just as he did with Adam in the garden. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. God set boundaries. You can eat of any of the, the trees in the garden. You can eat of the fruit of any of the trees in the garden, except of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a boundary. There's really nothing that makes that tree more beautiful than any of the other fruit in the garden. It's just a boundary that God has established as a means by which to show his authority and to show Adam an opportunity to express his allegiance, his trust in the Lord. So here, uh, the Lord has the authority to give a boundary of what is permitted and what is not. And just like Adam, uh, the people of Israel were to abide under God's law. In the garden, Adam was given instructions about what he could eat with a penalty that he would be banished from the Lord's presence if he disobeyed. The same is true now of the people of Israel. God is giving them a diet, and if they ab abide by it, they can enjoy God's presence. Uh, and, but they're going to have the opportunity to express their faith in the Lord in a very concrete way. Adam's faithfulness was expressed on the basis of what he ate. And so as one person says, every Israelite three times a day would give a visible, physical expression of their faith. 
Do I give my allegiance to the authority of God in my life? Or am I going to do as Adam did and eat what I want? Every day an Israelite is saying, under whose authority do I live by? If God says not to eat this, then I'm not going to eat it as an expression of my devotion to the Lord. So why this division? It is the Lord's command. The second thing is is that it's the Lord's consecration. You notice there it says, I am the Lord, you are God. Again, something calling attention to the fact that God redeemed Israel. He brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, and now they were to express uh, their devotion to him by living separate from the other nations of the world. This is something that's happening. Uh, The people of Israel were permitted to eat cows, but the Egyptians didn't. The Egyptians, much like a modern Hindu, venerated cows. And so a natural barrier is being set up here because God gives permission to eat the cow when their neighbors are not going to eat the cow. It's going to create that division. In a similar way, the Canaanites eat pigs. But by God saying you are not permitted to eat the pigs, it keeps the people of Israel separate from the Canaanite influence. It's going, to per, it's going to create a natural barrier that prevents them from assimilating everything Canaanite. And so there is this purpose behind the food laws that is making the people of Israel distinct in their practices. They're not just following along, but they're consciously trying to acknowledge the Lord in every area of their life. But ultimately, it is a concern for holiness. They are to be holy even as the Lord their God is holy. These distinctions, clean and unclean, are meant to describe different states. That's hard for us because we don't necessarily use those categories today. To be unclean wasn't a problem unless one came in contact with the holy. If you were unclean, it just meant that you couldn't come into the tabernacle. You couldn't draw near into God's presence. You were unfit. And so there's a a separation that happens. It's only those that are clean that can come into God's presence. But to be unclean and to come into contact with the holy risked destruction. And that's what it says later on in Leviticus 15. Uh, It says, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. If they come into the holy place, if they come into the tabernacle unclean, God's judgment will come upon them. So the people are to understand this whole categorization is meant to make them understand they need to be pure They need to be pure because their God is pure. They need to be pure in order to have acceptance with God because to come before God in an unclean state leaves them vulnerable to God's judgment. You think about diets. If you're on a strict diet because of the symptoms that certain foods can bring to you, then you will make that diet a priority. If you're gluten-free, You won't tolerate gluten. You will make it a priority to remove gluten from from your life because you don't want the effects of it. 
God here is putting the people of Israel on an impurity-free diet. They are learning that they need to be free from uncleanness. But that whole idea is not just ceremonial. It's meant to teach them that they need to be free from all corruptions moral as well. That, that God is holy. And so they themselves need to be pure and holy as their God is holy. It's a reflection and a testimony of the kind of God that they serve. That's why these food laws are there. It's teaching the people. There's a difference between clean and unclean. That's true here in a ceremonial sense. But it's also true morally. There's a difference between what is pure and clean and good in God's sight and what is deemed unclean and inappropriate and bad in God's sight. So there's this whole idea of avoiding corruption, avoiding uncleanness, avoiding contamination. And that whole idea of the food laws is pointing to their understanding of who God is as pure, but of what they're called to be if they're to be accepted in God's sight. They need to be pure as well. There's also the addressing of the uncleanness in this chapter. And that's really in the second half, starting at verse 24. Uh, it tells them different scenarios of what they are to do. The two big scenarios are what to do if they come in contact with a dead carcass or with a carcass. And the other one, if they were having to carry a carcass and an animal, a domesticated animal dies, they have to pick it up and move it. So what happens? Uh, when they come in contact with these things, they're going to be unclean. And it tells us that there was two different uh, outcomes. If they came in contact with a carcass, they were unclean until the evening. When the daylight ends, their uncleanness is over. And they are back into a clean state, meaning they can come to the tabernacle. If they carried a dead animal's body, they were unclean until the evening, and they needed to wash their clothes. They needed to be cleansed. And so this is uh, highlighting a, a further cleansing uh, aspect needing to take place. Uh, the same principle applies even if the animal uh, was permitted to, to be eaten. If it is one of their own herd uh, that dies, they're still made unclean by coming in contact with what is deadly, uh, coming in contact with what is of death to come before God who is the source of life. Uh, there is to be no death uh, that is in his presence. So here uh, we are told about two different um, uh, uh, responses of coming in contact with a carcass. In verses 29 and following, it talks about many of the details about swarming things. Uh, the word for swarming uh, comes from a word that means to multiply quickly. And so here, as it mentions, it's the idea of things like mice, uh, things that can reproduce very quickly. Uh, if one comes into contact, what does one do in these scenarios? And you notice here that it's really highlighting both the thoroughness of this principle as well as the mercy of God in this principle. There's a, a thoroughness of it. Because if one comes into contact with something that is unclean, then whatever it touches is now unclean. And so thorough is to be their concern for purity, that they want to remove all of it from their homes. Imagine living as an Israelite 
uh, during this time. And you go into your, your home and you go to pick up a bowl and there's a, a dead mouse in the bowl. Now you have to get rid of the dead mouse, but you also have to take that clay pot and destroy it. It's broken. It's no good anymore. It's unclean. Or maybe you're, you're cleaning uh, in your home and you're brushing off uh, stuff up from a pie and a, and a mouse falls as a result and it falls on your, your clay oven, your three-by-two oven. Now you have to actually dismantle that oven. It, it's no good to you. You have to remove it from your home because it's unclean. What is unclean spreads and it's to be treated as something uh, costly, something dangerous that needs to be removed from the home. All of this is teaching the people to be thorough about what is unclean. And again, you see a principle here. The people are to learn not just about a ceremony. They're learning how to deal with sin. That sin is something that needs to be removed from their lives and everything that it would stretch to touch. They don't want any place for sin to take root in their lives. They, they want to be free from sin. And so they are to be cleaning house, as it were, with their own heart, uh, to be thorough uh, in their pursuit of purity and holiness, not to be surface level or minimalistic. There was a person uh, that lived in the seven, 16th and 17th century. Uh, he was a Puritan who lived in England, and his name was Richard Rogers. And there's a story about Rogers, uh, that he was visiting someone, and the individual said to Rogers once, I like your company very well, but you are so precise. To which Rogers responded by saying, I serve a precise God. What was Rogers saying with that statement? I serve a precise God. He was saying that his understanding of God shaped the way that he lived his life. That just as his God is precise in his pursuit of excellence, in his orderliness, so he wants to be orderly and pursuing excellence. Just as God is holy, he wants to be holy himself. Just as God is pure, he wants to be pure. He wants to reflect something of the character of God in the way that he lives his life. That's what the people of Israel were to learn. As they discover more and more of what it means for God to be holy, they are to reflect his characters as a distinct nation. They are to be a people who show others what God is really like. And here God is teaching them there is a difference between what is pleasing in my sight and what is not. And what is not pleasing is to have no place in you. It is to be removed. If you were to be in my presence, you must mirror my character. And the people of God were to take that very seriously. We also see not just the thoroughness of the principle, but we also see uh, the mercy of God in the exercise of it as well. Items that were most costly to produce, things like wood, things like clothing, or most necessary, such as water or piles of seed, did not become unclean. These laws were not meant to crush the people. Uh, their source of water is something they need for life. And so even if something comes into contact with it, it's not unclean. That's that pile of seed, which is for their, har uh, for their plantation, for their future, would not become unclean. And so these principles 
are still shaped by mercy. The Lord is not intending to crush his people, even as he teaches them about the necessity of purity if they are to find acceptance with God. So what is all of this about, these food laws? It's a living parable. The people are learning something about God. He makes a dif difference between what is good and what is not. They're learning that even in a, a very simple way with the food they eat. God wants me to do this and not to do that. But he's also showing me that uncleanness must not be part of my life. That there must be a purity about me if I am to enjoy God's presence. When we hear that, it should convict us because what is being set up here is something that we don't realize ourselves. That in our own lives, we are not pure as God is pure. That there is something corrupt within us. Again, Jesus said it's not what, what goes into the body that makes one unclean. It's what comes out of the heart that causes a person to be unclean. That reveals our corruption. And so our problem of uncleanness is a moral one. But the good news is that God is a God who in his grace provides a way of cleansing. We looked at this morning the whole idea of Christ loving his bride, the church, and how the, the gospels teach us that Christ loved his church and he gave himself up for her and that by his blood he cleanses his bride. She's washed. She's made pure. She's made clean. She's made holy. While we ourselves are sinners, there is a way in which we can be made clean so that we can come into the presence of the holy and not be destroyed. So that we can be approved in God's sight because he sees the righteousness of Christ and God is satisfied. God is pleased. When we look at these uh, dietary laws, they're meant to teach us about separation from sin and defilement. They're to mark the people of God. That's how you could identify an Israelite. They were those who were circumcised. They were those who obeyed the food laws. But if new covenant believers, if believers in the Lord Jesus aren't marked off by these dietary laws, what is to distinguish a Christian today, if not by what they eat. Jesus gave us an answer, didn't he? When Jesus gave that parable of the Good Samaritan, you remember how Jesus framed it. He said that there was a man who was beaten up and that he was left half dead. He then said that a priest came by and passed over on the other side of the road. When you read that parable against the book of Leviticus, you can understand how the average Israelite would be actually sympathetic to what the priest did because he didn't want to come in contact with the dead. Otherwise, he couldn't serve in Jerusalem. The Levite does the same thing because he serves. He doesn't want to become unclean. But then on, along comes a Samaritan, someone who is not part of the people of Judea, and it tells us that he had compassion on the man and that he takes him to an inn, he provides for his needs, and he assures that he will cover all the expenses. And then Jesus says, which of those three was a neighbor? 
to which the person who was wanting to justify himself, to obtain eternal life, said, the third one. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. What is to mark the new covenant believer? What is to distinguish them? It is those that reflect the character of God. It is those who are marked by compassion, as their God is the God of compassion. It is those who are marked by holiness, as their God is holy. It is those who are marked by a moral purity, as their God is pure himself. It is those who have been transformed by God's forgiving grace in Jesus Christ and now live resembling his likeness, being consecrated to his will. It's not what they eat that makes them different. It's their knowledge of God's grace that changes the way that they live their lives. And so while we don't abide by these food laws anymore, we do recognize that those who follow the Lord are to live differently. But they will only live differently when they have come to encounter the holiness of God, when they have come to see God's grace in Jesus, when they have come to see God's compassion towards them as sinners to make them clean. If you're a professing Christian then this evening, we are to want to live our lives, every aspect of our lives, seeking to honor the Lord. As it says in 2 Corinthians, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Jesus tells us that we are to love our enemies. And after saying that, he says, therefore, be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is teaching us those who have come to know God are now to live consecrated, reflecting God's character in this world. That's how you can see the followers of Christ. Let's pray.